Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. I'm just delighted today to welcome Eric Reedy to the podcast. Eric is a journalist who I've known for a number of years, who is the migration editor at large for The New Humanitarian. He has reported extensively on refugees and asylum seekers in many different contexts, including migration in the Mediterranean, as well as on the U.S.-Mexico border. He was the author a few years ago of of an award-winning piece called Ghost Boat. It was an investigative series about the disappearance of a boat of refugees on the Mediterranean Sea. And his journalism since that has continued in a similar style that you don't see very often. It's very long form, it's people driven, character driven. And Eric usually spends weeks or even months sometimes based in pretty tough places to talk to people, listen to people and to hear their stories and and translate into, into really good journalism. So in this episode, we talk a bit about how Eric got started in this work, how he got into journalism and covering stories about refugees in particular. And we talk a lot about the worsening situation at the U.S.-Mexico border right now, um, but we go beyond that too. We talk about some of Eric's previous work on migration to the EU, what people get wrong about refugees, and why there are just no real easy answers to policy questions about migration. This was a really interesting, thoughtful conversation with Eric. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that you do too. So here is now my conversation with Eric Reedy. Eric Reedy, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Julie. Thanks for having me on. Um, There's a lot I'm looking forward to speaking with you about today, but I just wanted to start by asking you how you decided to become a journalist. If I'm if I'm right, you're from Pennsylvania. You studied history at the University of Pittsburgh, um, and then now you're a journalist writing mostly on migration and refugees. So, what nudged you in that direction? Um, yeah, it's 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 a good question, and it definitely has not been a linear path. Um, as as you mentioned, I, I studied uh, history and international and area studies at uh, the University of Pittsburgh, um, and my my concentration was in in the Middle East. Um, and so I um, I was required to take Arabic for three years as part of that program. And when I graduated, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but I, I also knew that Arabic had been such a difficult language and had taken up so much of my time that if I didn't uh, continue to study it and figure out how to, how to use it in some way, I would be uh, really frustrated with myself for having put in so much effort and then not making anything out of it. So after graduating, I... Um, I moved to Beirut for what was supposed to be, you know, two, three months of, of studying Arabic at an Arabic Institute there. Um, and uh, while I was there, I sort of randomly got connected with uh, a media and cultural freedom uh, organization uh, called the Samir Qasir Center um, and got a job there uh, that kept me in Beirut for, um, you know, for the better part of a year and also introduced me to the whole world of, of journalism and media in the Middle East. Um, and so it was sort of, I, I was, I was writing and interviewing people for them. And so it sort of started me on this path um, towards, towards a career in journalism. Nice. And, and how did you start focusing on migration and refugees in particular as your main focus in journalism? Yeah, also um, sort of a not a, a nonlinear path um, in some ways. So I was in, in 2000, 
2014 and 2015, I was living in Tunisia um, and I had moved there um, to cover the first um, presidential election post-revolution and also the, the parliamentary elections that happened in 2014. Um, so it was very much looking at Tunisia through the lens of um, post, you know, so-called Arab Spring political developments, the one country that had experienced the 2011 protest that was having an ongoing uh, democratic transition and sort of looking at what that looked like on the ground. Um, but also while I was in Tunis thinking about those things, um, the migration crisis in the Mediterranean was accelerating uh, in 2014 and especially in 2015. Um, and so on, on one reporting trip to the south of Tunisia, to um, Mednin and Zarzis, these, these two towns um, sort of close to the border with Libya, um, I, I got my first exposure. I was uh, supposed to meet with the head of the Tunisian Red Crescent in, um, in the area and uh, to, to talk about something entirely different. Um, but on, on the morning I was supposed to meet him, I, I called him. Um, and he said, you know, sorry, uh, I'm going to have to miss our meeting because the Tunisian Coast Guard just rescued um, a, a boat of uh, migrants that was adrift, um, you know, off the coast of Tunisia after leaving Libya. They've been taken to the port city of Zarzis, and I'm on the scene, uh, you know, handing out bottles of water, sanitation kits, dry clothes, that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm a bit busy, but if you want to come here, uh, and see what the situation is like, um, you're welcome to come and then we can have the conversation that we were planning on having before afterwards. So um, being, being a journalist, um, I was you know, interested and curious um, and decided to go and uh, to, to see what the situation was at, at the port in Zarzis. Um, and so that was, you know, that, that was really my, my first exposure. Um, I, I got there and uh, I, you know, I, still remember the scene very clearly. Um, there was a, a big hangar at the port, sort of a prefabricated metal building. Um, I was dark inside. And when you opened the doors, there were just, you know, around a hundred people um, who were uh, sitting inside of this hangar who had just been rescued from this boat. Um, and there, a lot, a lot of their clothes were lined up outside drying the people's jeans and t-shirts were lined up outside in the sun outside of this hangar drying. So that was sort of my first, first exposure, um, to, to the, uh, migration crisis in the Mediterranean. And, uh, also ended up being the first article, um, that I, that I wrote about it. And I wanted to ask you more about how you write your articles, because you have a very human approach, I guess I can say to your journalism, which tends to be more long form, more narrative, more people driven, if you will, than pure like reporting. So I was wondering how you came around to that style and why it's so important to tell stories in that way, especially when covering refugees and migration. Yeah, um, I, I guess one of one of the early themes of our conversation is uh, my decisions not being particularly intentional, <laughs> um, and I would I would say that that it's it's similar um, with you know I guess the the sort of human centric story approach. I think it's mostly I, I've tried to emulate the type of reporting that moved me when I was a teenager and a young adult reading other people's work 
um, that really sort of made me feel connected to people and events and places that, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I up to that point had had no exposure to. So finding this very, you know, evocative human story centric writing to, you know, be able to transport me there to understand some of the emotional experience was, was what would, was effective for me as a reader and sort of the experience that I, I try to recreate for people who read my writing. Um, you know, I, I, th I think it's a tremendous privilege uh, to be able to, to travel the way that I have traveled and to meet the people who I have met and to sort of see the places that I've seen. Um, and, you know, my, my number one goal in terms of writing those type of stories is to try to translate some of the emotional experience that I have, um, you know, on the reporting trips that I go on to, uh, to audiences who, who engage with the articles. And how is it with getting people to talk with you and writing about people who are in very difficult situations? Because one thing I like about your journalism is you are talking about often very grim situations. And at the same time, the individuals that you profile in your articles, you really hold them up with, with dignity rather than with pity. And, and that's a tough balance, I think, to, to find. And how do you manage that? And how is it just getting people to talk with you? Um, yeah, I, th I think, you know, in terms of getting people to talk with me, I've, I've always been um, surprised and, you know, pleasantly so at how willing people are to, to speak, um, you know, it, whether it's in the, the north of Niger or, um, you know, in, two, in 2016, I was on the Greek Macedonia border um, when, when that border was closed and a, a refugee camp popped up in, in this small village overnight of, you know, something like 12, 15,000 people. Um, and just finding people in really ex extreme situations who um, still have, you know, sort of their basic sense of human dignity uh, fully intact. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and also a, a desire to try to translate their experience to other people. Um, and so I think, I think in some cases it helps that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, come out and say like, I'm fully fluent in Arabic or anything like that. I, but I'm, I managed to have conversations with people um, and, you know, particularly being somewhere like Greece um, speaking with Syrian refugees or Iraqi refugees um, speaking the language really helps. I think it really breaks down barriers immediately. And, you know, I'm, I'm very clearly uh, somebody who's from the quote unquote West, um, but I speak the language I've lived in places that, you know, are familiar to, um, the people that um, I'm speaking to. So I think that, you know, this sort of sense of having, having a foot in both worlds to some extent really um, helps break down those barriers and, and have people um, be open to communicating um, what, what they're experiencing. And I also, you know, I, I've been very intentional about not wanting to do or trying to do fast journalism. For, for me, you know, the, the people that I'm speaking to are sort of the, the most important thing. And so I'm not rushing in and trying to get a quote or just, you know, find the right character. I, I you know, I, I come and I ask permission first and then sit down and make small talk and try to get to know people and, you know, establish a sense of comfort if it involves 
um, sharing a meal or, you know, drinking a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or coming back for two or three days um, to the same place, to the same people. Um, you know, I, I try to do those things to indicate that I'm not just interested in, you know, uh, some sort of sensational story, but in terms of trying to, um, to, uh, I'm using the word translate a lot, but translate that person's, um, experience to the page, uh, you know, as, um, as fully and impactfully as possible. Um, and so I think doing those small things and sort of coming in with an attitude of, of not wanting to, you know, not just looking for a quote to grab, but trying to get to know the person and understand what they've been through, um, really, really helps with, with people being willing to speak. Yeah. Well, it comes through a lot in your stories. Um, I know one of your first major projects when, uh, you were, uh, looking at migration in the Mediterranean several years ago was your award-winning investigative series on Ghost Boat, uh, a ship carrying, I think, 243 refugees that simply disappeared. Can you tell me more about that story, how you got, how you got involved with that and what it entailed? Yeah, um, so I, I first heard about that story in January 2015, um, and a, fr a friend of mine in Tunisia was, um, working as a translator for a Swedish Eritrean activist named uh, Marona Stefanos, um, who was in contact with a lot of the family members of these 243 people who had disappeared and who was trying to figure out what happened. And so my, my friend who was translating for Maron um, told me the story about what she was doing. And I was sort of incredulous, like, you know, how can 243 people disappear um, and nobody has, Heard about this. I, I went on Google and I looked, there were no articles, there was nothing. Um, and this was also right around the, the time of the Malaysia Airlines crash, uh, which I think is sort of, you know, th that was a global news story. I think it was, it was like 240 people around the same number of people who disappeared in this incident. And it dominated global news coverage on, you know, cable networks in the US and Europe, um, you know, for weeks trying to figure out what happened to these people uh, who were flying in this airplane. Uh, meanwhile, you have a group of uh, African refugees, predominantly African refugees in the Mediterranean who set out same number of people who vanished off the face of the earth. And there's literally no trace, no interest, nothing. Um, and so, it, I mean, it seemed like there was an imbalance there and, and sort of, a you know, initially a sense of disbelief that something like this could have happened that and, and nobody care about it or pay attention to it. Um, and I ended up getting connected with the, the husband of um, one of the women who was with this group of people, his, his wife and his, his young daughter were um, on the boat and disappeared. And so um, got connected with him. He told me his story um, and, and sort of the family's story. And I was, I was very lucky to, um, you know, to find an editor who believed in the, the story and sort of put together this innovative framework for going about, um, you know, investigating it instead of just telling the story of what had happened up to that point. Um, uh, the, the editor I was working with had the idea of turning it into an investigation to try to figure out what happened and sort of live reporting it. Um, 
along the lines of the the serial podcast, um, and then every week sort of writing a um, writing an installation of the story about what we had done uh, in the investigation in the previous week. Um, so that was that was sort of how how we got started on that on that uh, series. And did you ever find out what happened to it? Um, yeah, uh, the the short answer is no. Um, the, the longer answer is I, I spent, uh, over a year, um, sort of following all of the leads, um, that existed and that came up, um, and basically got to the point where, where I had exhausted, um, all of the evidence, all of the information, all of the threads that we had, uh, in the investigation and, and the story became much more about, um, about, uh, a, a concept called ambiguous loss, which is this idea of, um, you know, how do you, how do you grieve? How do you move on in life? If, you know, the people closest to you, your, your, your partners, your children, um, your brothers or sisters, uh, disappear, um, and there's no conclusive evidence about what happens. Um, and so the, you know, the, the last, um, the last installation of the story is about, um, about the, the impact of that on, on the families of, uh, you know, of these 243 people. Um, and, you know, sometimes I've, I've had, I've had people say, you know, it's a, it's a real shame. You didn't find out what happened because if you had, you know, it would have been this very cinematic, um, narrative arc to the story. And you probably would have gotten, you know, like, a, a some interest from, from people who wanted to turn it into a movie as this great sort of heroic story. But I, I really think that the place that we ended up in the investigation is actually a much more accurate and significant, representation of the emotional experience of migration in the Mediterranean than uh, it would have been had we found an answer. Because the reality is, you know, of the um, more than 21,000 people who have died in the Mediterranean since 2014 alone, um, the vast majority of those people's loved ones never get an answer. Um, about what happened or, you know, a conclusive answer at some point, uh, you know, a lot of people could jump to the conclusion that their relative has passed away in a shipwreck. Um, but for the vast majority, uh, the bodies are never found. Um, they, you know, they wash up in Libya or in Tunisia where the body identification procedures are not adequate for identifying people or, they get um, picked up by the Italians where there are body identification pe uh, procedures in place, but the communication between the people collecting DNA samples and dental records and that kind of stuff um, and the families who are looking for answers isn't in place. Um, or probably the most frequent outcome is that the body is just, you know, they, they sink below the waves and they, and they disappear um, in, in the sea. Um, and so this, you know, there, there's really probably hundreds of thousands of people um, around the world, um, particularly in, in Africa and the Middle East, who are dealing with the situation of not having a conclusive answer, not having a body to mourn, not having, you know, um, not being able to go through the rituals of 
of grieving and processing death because, you know, the concrete information about what has happened to the people they love is, is non-existent. Yeah, and you've continued to write on the Mediterranean and EU migration policy. Where, where does all of that stand now, especially in the wake of COVID? Yeah, so a, a couple of things. From, from 2014, 2015, when I first started reporting on this, and it was really judged to be a crisis um, because of the number of people who were crossing the sea, what has happened is the, the EU has uh, effectively put in place a lot of policies, either directly or indirectly, that have limited uh, people's ability to, to cross uh, the Mediterranean Sea. So the, the number of people crossing the sea for the past two or three years has really been within historical averages. You know, for, for decades, it's been normal for 15, 20, 30,000 people to cross the Mediterranean from Spain or from Morocco to Spain, from Libya to Italy, um, you know, from, from Turkey to Greece. Um, you know, there, there, there is a degree of migration that is completely normal throughout the course of history uh, across this body of water. Um, so we've really gone back to, to those levels, uh, even if it's through coercion to some extent, through these policies that have made it more difficult for people to migrate, um, that have their own sort of consequences, humanitarian and human rights consequences, um, for sure. Um, and in terms of COVID, you know, what, what's happening with COVID is that um, it is really accelerating the drivers of migration in a lot of places, particularly on the economic side of things. You know, I think um, people will be familiar with uh, the idea of a, uh, a COVID-related economic crisis or downturn, job losses, et cetera, um, at, at all levels of society, more or less. But, you know, um, far, far from being the great equalizer that some people predicted early on, COVID has really hit the most vulnerable hardest. Um, and so people who are living on, on the edge of poverty to begin with, or, you know, um, were, were uh, struggling to, um, you know, to, to subsist, uh, the situation has gotten gotten much worse. The the overall economic downturn has gotten much worse. You know, the uh, people like me, fortunate to be able to continue my work from behind a computer in the safety of my house. But for for many people, lockdowns meant you know people who live hand to mouth day by day. Um, lockdowns meant not being able to make any money at all. And so the the question between you know taking co uh, COVID precautions and um, earning money to, to, you know, eat, to live, uh, was a very real question, um, facing a lot of people. So, so all of the early indications from, you know, from Tunisia, there's been an uptick in Tunisians who are leaving the country, um, from Senegal, uh, West Africa in general. Um, you know, there's, there's a real indication that while COVID restrictions have made, um, global mobility more difficult in general, um, the sort of secondary impacts of the pandemic have also exacerbated the drivers of migration. And so you already see certain places where more people are migrating out of necessity um, because, you know, COVID is overlapping with pre-existing economic uh, problems or climate change issues and just sort of making it an untenable situation for people to stay where they are. 
Yeah, and I think some of that's probably contributing to push factors in Central America right now too that are leading that are leading to um, an increase of migration to the U.S. border. So I wanted to turn to the U.S. now, and you spent some time reporting on the U.S.-Mexico border. I think in 2018. Um, what was the situation like then, and what kinds of stories were you focusing on? Um, yeah, so in in 2018, it was the um, you know, it was, it was two years into the Trump presidency. Um, and at that point, um, the, the metering policy was just being put, put into place. And so the metering policy was, um, you know, this, this practice of limiting the number of people who could approach a uh, point of entry um, at the US-Mexico border to request asylum. So in the past, um, you know, people with asylum claims could walk up to a uh, US port of entry, uh, say that they wanted to claim asylum and, and the, um, you know, the, the US personnel at the border would, would have to process, uh, process them in some way. Um, and so one of the ways the Trump administration was um, trying to severely reduce the number of people who were entering the US uh, as uh, asylum claimants was to say, okay, you know, the, the border only has a capacity to process X number of people on a given day. And so instead of you being able to walk up, you have to wait uh, on the Mexican side of the border until there's, you know, until your, your turn comes up. So basically there were lines of people forming at the, on the Mexican side of the border, um, these sort of uh, informal impromptu lists, um, you know, being made of, okay, who, who's, whose turn is it to, to be able to access these limited, limited number of spots, uh, which in turn was creating sort of a humanitarian crisis on the, on the Mexican side of the border, because a lot of the areas on the Mexican side of the border, um, you know, are, are not equipped to deal with a large number of asylum seekers who, um, who are staying for a prolonged period of time instead of passing through. And also there's, you know, there's, there's a cartel presence, there's organized crime presence on that side of the border. And so these people who are already vulnerable, many of them fleeing uh, cartel violence and extortion um, in the areas that they come from um, were, you know, left stagnant, um, you know, in places where they didn't know the situation as well. Uh, didn't have the contacts, didn't have safe housing, didn't have work, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, they became targets for, for the cartels in, in a lot of ways. Um, so that was some of the reporting that I was doing on, on the, on the U S Mexico border, um, back in 2018. From a humanitarian perspective, I know it's a little bit different, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about the difference between asylum seekers and those who are crossing the border like illegally, so to speak. And like, can you just explain how people who are coming and seeking asylum, like how that's actually like a legal process and people are people who are trying to do that are are going through the quote unquote like legal proper channel. And I think sometimes the framing of quote unquote irregular entries is as illegal entries. And I was wondering if you could just discuss that distinction a little bit. Yeah. So an asylum seeker, uh, Basically, an asylum seeker is somebody who, um, you know, has claim to international protection under um, the, the Refugee Act. And uh, so there, there's a definition fleeing persecution on the grounds of, you know, identity, 
um, political affiliation. There's sort of a, a standard definition for people who, who deserve um, political protection. And there's also sort of some subsidiary definitions, things that have been recognized as, you know, whether it's, um, you know, under, under uh, prior to the Trump administration, domestic violence, gang violence, cartel extortion, maybe things that didn't fit into the classic definition of, you know, uh, in, in the refugee convention about who deserve protection, but have been added on as, um, you know, things that have been recognized as legitimate reasons why people can't stay in the places that they're from. So basically people who have a legitimate claim to need protection and, you know, returning to the place where they're coming from would put their lives in uh, serious jeopardy are considered to be asylum seekers. Um, and now, uh, you know, an, an asylum seeker um, is sort of separate from the question about regular or irregular entry, because an asylum seeker can enter the U.S. irregularly, um, you know, if the, the port of entry um, to enter the country is, you know, not accessible, then somebody who needs to make an asylum claim um, could enter the U.S. irregularly, which has no bearing whatsoever on the legality of their asylum claim. Uh, and so this is, I mean, whether it's in the U.S. or in Europe, you know, across the, the quote unquote wealthy world, one of the, you know, one of the, the biggest sort of contradictions is that there are these laws in place that say that people who are fleeing persecution, um, you know, are entitled to protection. But the only way that the vast majority of people can access that protection or even make a claim to say that they are, you know, deserving of that protection is to um, travel irregularly and enter the country irregularly to do that because the legal channels to enter the US as an asylum seeker or to enter Europe as an asylum seeker uh, or a refugee are extremely, extremely limited. Um, so there's sort of this, you know, uh, inherent tension between the, we recognize that some people need protection and, you know, we're going to severely limit people who might need protection, um, you know, limit their ability to access the territory where they can make that claim to protection. Um, yeah. And so, so yeah, so um, for asylum seekers, it doesn't really matter how they enter uh, a country, they should be entitled to that protection. I guess the distinction would be between people who are perceived to be traveling for economic reasons versus people who are, you know, perceived to be traveling for, um, you know, for, for the needs of, of protection. And that is what government officials are essentially deciding when an asylum claim is quote unquote processed is kind of making that call. If people have a legitimate claim to, um, to stay because they're fleeing persecution or fleeing gang or cartel violence versus quote unquote economic reasons. Yeah, essentially. And I, you know, some, sometimes it, it's, it's hard to disentangle motivations because often they're overlapping Sure. Um, or, you know, there, there could be some elements of, of both. So it's, it's, it's a much more complex picture in reality than, you know, it is in trying to draw these hard and fast lines between, you know, categories of people on paper. So part of it could be, uh, you know, for, for the official who's making that distinction saying, okay, you're an economic migrant versus a legitimate asylum seeker, that could be, you know, that could be part of it. But another part of it could be that, you know, the official just doesn't judge the claimant's story to be 
trustworthy or whatever the person is fleeing might not fit into the definition of you know somebody who is deserving of protection at that particular point in time. So for, for example, um, the Trump administration removed gang violence and domestic violence from legitimate reasons for people to receive protection in the US. So prior to that change, those were legitimate reasons. Post that change, they were no longer legitimate reasons. That doesn't mean that the situation where, you know, the people applying under those terms, uh, where they came from, their situation hasn't changed. It's just the definition on paper uh, in the U.S. that changed that made them, you know, quote unquote, deserving or or not. Yeah, and I, I want to come back and, and ask you a little bit more about the situation at the border now. But are there any, um, were there any stories that really stood out to you from that reporting, like an individuals or families story that was particularly memorable to you? Yeah, so I guess, I guess the, you know, sort of the, the image that, that sticks with me most from that is just walking across the border in Southern Arizona at the port of entry. Um, and for, for me with the U.S. passport, it was very easy to you know, to cross back and forth. But when I was, you know, when I would re-enter the U.S., I would walk past these, you know, families, often with young children sitting, you know, sitting along the walkway uh, to the entrance of the, of the port of entry. And uh, it was, it was just, it was, it was a very dramatic illustration of sort of the, the inequality of, of global access to, to mobility and also my, my own sort of position in it. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. Yeah, well, going back to the border then, so you explained how by 2018, asylum seekers were already uh, made to wait on the Mexico side of the border, essentially. And then I think, I guess it was about a year ago now, you wrote another piece on the Trump administration's decision to halt the processing of asylum seekers pretty much full stop um, so that anyone coming to the border was essentially sent to wait in, in Mexico. And many countries adopted very similar policies. And my understanding is the Biden administration has pretty much kept that policy in place with the exception of unaccompanied minors. So what does that policy mean in practice? Like what, what does this look like now at the border? So basically the, the, the policy that you're referring to was a public health order um, issued by the Centers for Disease Control in the US, which basically said for reasons of the pandemic, instead of, you know, instead of uh, people who cross the border irregularly into the U.S. being processed by uh, border patrol and being able to submit asylum claims, um, go through sort of the established procedures, uh, everybody is just going to be immediately expelled from the country uh, because it's, quote unquote, unsafe to, um, you know, bring people into congregate settings during the pandemic, um, which there, there might be some logic to that to some extent. Um, however, uh, if you talk to public health experts about this, they'll say it, it, it really doesn't make sense for, for two reasons. One, because, um, traffic across the U S Mexico border was never stopped entirely. There have always been truck drivers, 
you know, people who work on either side of the border, even tourists crossing back and forth. And so if your concern is about the spread of the virus and you're going to put in this sort of uh, restriction to prevent the spread of the virus, the only way it would make sense from a public health standpoint would be if it was applied across the board to all categories of people. And so the fact that it was only applied in this incredibly stringent manner to people crossing the border irregularly um, has caused a, a lot of public health experts to uh, conclude that it was not so much about limiting the spread of the virus and concerns about, you know, about the coronavirus as it was about uh, advancing the Trump administration's agenda of ending access to asylum and putting in place all of these hardline migration policies at the U.S.-Mexico border. So that's that's sort of the, the background to the to the situation. And and you're right, the Biden administration um, had came into office having promised uh, to take a very different approach from the Trump administration uh, to the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border, um, a, a more humane uh, approach that respects the U.S.'s international commitments and, uh, you know, trying trying to roll back a lot of the Trump administration uh, policies. But so far, this public health order has remained in place. And at the beginning of February, uh, the Biden administration announced that it would be um, sort of implementing an, an exception to the public health policy, which, as you said, was, um, uh, you know, it would no longer be expelling unaccompanied minors who crossed the border, um, but they would be brought into the U.S. and and processed. And so the you know the crisis at the border that we're seeing, quote unquote, crisis at the border that we're seeing now, really has a lot more to do with sort of all of these factors of you know the the secondary impacts of the pandemic exacerbating the need for people to migrate, um, sort of this buildup of pressure uh, on the on the southern side of the U.S.-Mexico border because of all of these uh, policies from the Trump administration that had limited access to protection, you know, and, and now there's this like tiny release valve that has been opened, which is the exception to the public health order for unaccompanied minors. And, you know, the, the level of need is tremendous. And so you see a large number of of unaccompanied minors crossing the border. And now um, the, the uh, U.S. government having to you know, sort of grapple with how to accommodate all of these people in ways that line up with uh, child protection and safety standards, which is, you know, which is a pretty significant task. And in your perspective, what would a humane border policy look like? I mean, how is it possible to balance the humanitarian imperatives with just border concerns, security concerns, and even just feasibility logistics of managing large flows of people across the border? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, and um, sometimes I'm, I'm happy that I'm a, a journalist and not a policymaker, um, where I, I can be much more uh, descriptive rather than uh, proscriptive, because, um, you know, th these are, they're, they're certainly uh, big challenges um, that, that are, you know, hard, you know there, I don't think there's any easy solution to the situation. Um, what, what I can say is that, uh, you know, often policy is a ref reflection of priorities. So if the priority, if, if there is a legitimate and intentional priority to develop a more humane system of handling migration at the US-Mexico border, um, 
you know, where, where migration is not seen as a problem, but as, you know, a normal um, human endeavor and that there are lots of people who either for economic reasons or for, um, you know, reasons of needing protection are at, at any given point in time going to be uh, on the move, um, then, you know, there, if, if you have a system that, that starts from that understanding that this is a normal part of human history and we have to figure out how to, how to manage it as opposed to trying to stop it, then you'll have a very different system that emerges with the resources, you know, funding, you know, uh, bureaucratic structures, um, you know, ev even down to the sort of messaging that the people who work on the border processing uh, people uh, who are crossing approach the situation with instead of, a, you know, our job is to keep you out. It's a, our job is to, um, you know, treat you with dignity as a human being uh, and, and, you know, figure out how to manage this situation. It's, it's a very different sort of approach that would take place. Um, and I think, you know, particularly after four years of the Trump administration, where, you know, um, the, the system was pushed extre extremely far in the direction of being um, cruel to people who are trying to cross the border. Um, not that all of this was an invention of the Trump administration. The system, the, the system on the, on the US-Mexico border and sort of the approach to migration has been problematic for, for decades. Um, but the, uh, you know, the sort of intentional cruelty of the Trump administration um, is, is going to take some time to, to unwind and, and will only do so if there is real in, intention and effort to, um, to roll back a lot of the policies and also to address um, a lot of the issues that you know, pre-existed uh, the Trump administration um, in the process. And you've mentioned the Trump administration, and uh, certainly immigration has become increasingly divisive in the United States and to some degree in Europe as well. But I, I feel in the US, at least, that wasn't always the case. And I was wondering, do you see that changing at all post-Trump in the US or even post-Brexit in, in Europe? Or are positions becoming even more hardened and the issue becoming even more politicized? Um, it's, it's hard to imagine it becoming less politicized. Um, in, in the U.S., there's been sort of a 30-year uh, development in this direction to, to get where we are. Um, you know, the, the fact that um, George W. Bush, uh, you know, ran his first presidential campaign on a, a platform of comprehensive immigration reform um, is, you know, not something that is easy to square with the position of, you know, the, the leaders of the Republican Party um, in, in this day and age. Uh, you know, um, it's it's just the, the the attitudes have shifted to a, to a you know sort of a very extreme position on migration. There's been a whole mobilization over the course of the last 30 years around um, sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric in, in the U.S. Um, so I, I think that that, you know, that is here to set, stay to some extent. Um, 
you know, particularly looking forward to um, the continued economic fallout of COVID, both in the U.S. and in Europe, usually during difficult economic times. Um, uh, you know, it 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 is uh, ripe ground for for populists and and nativists to sort of make their argument about you know why are we letting other people in or these other people who we have let in, in the past are taking the jobs that you should have. So it's it's a really um, you know it's a it's a time when the argument um, about uh, nativism and populism is often often made and often often finds a, a receptive audience. Um, and the, and you know and then there are also these sort of deeper questions about identity, both in the U.S. and in Europe, um, slightly different um, in in both contexts, but definitely something that's been an animating political factor in both places about you know, who, who belongs to the identity of this place? Who, who, who do we count as in and who do we count as out? Um, and, you know, um, I, I don't unfortunately see those things going anywhere. You know, if, if, if I want to be a bit optimistic, I would say that there's, there's some hope in sort of younger generations who, um, you know, have grown up with a more globalized um, worldview that, that values diversity um, and, you know, maybe uh, stronger human rights based education and, and messaging they've been exposed to. Um, and so, you know, in, in general, younger generations seem to have more open uh, values about diversity and, and immigration. Um, so that that could uh, suggest some some room for for positivity in the future. But, you know, in, in the short term, I, I think the, the extremes, you know, it looks, it looks like the extremes are, are, um, you know, are only sort of being, being exacerbated. What do most people get wrong when they think about refugees or migration? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, I, I would say that, you know, what most people get wrong is that the the way of the way of thinking about refugees or the need to migrate you know thinking about it as something external to to their own experiences as as unrelatable um what what i've found in my reporting and in the vast majority of people that i've you know ever spoken to is that you know um life is somewhat arbitrary um and you know we're we're assigned our places of birth arbitrarily we're assigned our privileges in life arbitrarily um and the the larger movements of of history and politics that have a direct impact on our lives is you know largely beyond our individual control and so it's easy to sit back and think that i'm i'm not somebody who would ever find myself in a situation like this. And so I can't relate to it. Um, but I, I really do think that, you know, the, the vast majority of people I've ever spoken to, I would say pretty much every, every single one um, is, is relatable and has just, you know, through sort of these arbitrary assignments of, of life, uh, found themselves in a situation where they are either forced or compelled by very strong forces to take tremendous risks 
um, to, to find safety or, or, or better opportunity. And I, I find that to be an incredibly, you know, re- relatable uh, thing, even if the circumstances are, you know, not circumstances that I've directly, um, you know, directly had to, had to navigate in my own life. What is something on which your own thinking has changed since you started covering refugees and migration? That's also a good question, a tough one. Um, you know, I, I, I guess one thing is that um, I have become much more acutely aware of my own privilege as you know, uh, a Western passport holder, um, in, in this, like, you know, I'm, I am also an economic migrant. Um, I, you know, I've, I've lived in, in four or five countries. Um, I I've traveled very much for the reason of, you know, finding a career and wanting to, to do the work that I want to do. Um, you know, so there's, like there's, there's an economic calculus to, uh, you know, to, to the reasons why I've lived in the places that I've lived in, um, and, you know, uh, pursued the, the work that I pursue. Um, but, you know, because I am a white man with a U.S. passport, um, people don't look at me as a potential threat. People don't look at me as, you know, a potential drain on resources, um, you know, I'm, I'm putting this sort of other category of, you know, of, of privileged migrant when, when really, you know, sort of the, and it's, it's, you know, and yeah, it is absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm migrating out of a, out of a place of privilege, but, um, you know, my rationality is not entirely, you know, separate from, from the rationality of, of others, um, who, move with an even greater uh, incentive to do so. And finally, what's the hardest part about being a journalist covering migration and what keeps you doing this kind of work? I'm reminded of a tweet that a mutual friend of ours posted a few days ago and she wrote, I've seen the limits of journalism and of hope. And you responded to that. You said, I think many of us share this sentiment and yet we find reasons to believe in the importance of our work and we persist. What's the alternative? I was wondering if you could say more about that. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I guess the, the hardest part is um, from, from the time that I started covering this in 2015 until now, um, you know, the, the situation has sort of gone from bad to worse. Um, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to find silver linings or, or positive stories to tell, um, you know, and if, if I was writing the stories that I write, you know, out of the expectation that they would uh, affect policy and push policy in, in a more sort of humane direction um, or, you know, sort of contributes to this sort of inevitable linear progress of history towards a better direction, um, then I would, I would find myself, you know, depressed and disheartened pretty much all of the time because I see uh, pretty much zero evidence 
uh, of that of that having happened over the six years, six or seven years of of my career here. Um, so yeah, I think you know I think that um, when when I wrote that response to to the tweet, I think I was very I was very much thinking about that. Um, you know, where the, the limits of journalism, you know, in, in some ideal world, uh, you know, all of the journalists who are out here, you know, working and, and trying to tell stories that will push policy in a more, you know, humane and thoughtful direction. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to find evidence that it, it works that way. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, I, I find an incredible amount of motivation to, to do what I do, um, in sort of the, the reward of being able to, um, translate the stories and emotional experiences of the, of the people that I meet and interact with to, to others, um, you know, in the hope that, uh, if it's, you know, if it's just a younger version of myself sitting behind a computer somewhere, um, in the in the U.S. or wherever, curious about exploring the world beyond their sort of limited uh, experience. That you know, th there are people that these stories will connect with and will help shape their worldview and their their morals and and their sense of values and and what's right and wrong. And you know, whether that has um, an impact on the grand scheme of things, um, you know, is is highly debatable. As I've said, but I think as as a you know, as a value in itself, it's, it's, it's still worth doing. Well, in that case, I'll end with the question we usually end on. Is there, are, are there any books that you would recommend to listeners that have had an impact on you? Yes. Um, so there's, there's two um, that, you know, particularly on, on these topics of, of uh, my, migration and refugees that I think are, are um, very relevant. One is uh, Beyond the Sand and Sea by Ty McCormick. Um, which actually just came out uh, today. Um, it's the story of uh, a um, Somali refugee from uh, Dada refugee camp in, in Kenya and his, his family's sort of 30-year odyssey to try to get resettled in the U.S. Um, and so I thought it was, uh, I thought it was an excellent book and really an um, you know, important story uh, about both the... Um, the importance and impact of refugee resettlement and then sort of the, the um, fundamental inequalities uh, and injustices that, that exist around, you know, who is able to access that very limited uh, pathway, um, you know, to, to a new life and, and who is not. Um, so yeah, that, that was an excellent book. And then there's also um, a book called The, the Ungrateful Refugee, um, by Dina Nayari. Um, and so she is an uh, Iranian uh, former refugee who eventually um, was resettled in the US. And so she, she's sort of, um, it's, it's a memoir that also explores the, you know, um, Europe's reaction to the migration crisis in the Mediterranean in 2014, 2015, um, and turns a lot of the assumptions about how you know, we expect refugees to act and think on their heads, this idea that, you know, um, people who are fleeing for their lives should be so grateful for, you know, the opportunity 
that um, Western societies have given to a very limited number of them to, you know, live in a safe place and start to rebuild their lives. They should be eternally grateful forever and ever. Um, you know, turn, turns that assumption on its head a little bit and, and is really sort of a, an intimate and very compelling look at, um, you know, the, the systems that are in place um, for, uh, you know, processing refugees and asylum seekers and, and just the, the degree of inhumanity that exists within them, even, even the ones that are, you know, um, supposedly designed to protect people. All right. Well, Eric Reedy, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Julie. Thank you once again to Eric Reedy. You have been listening to The Julie Norman Show. If you like the podcast, please recommend it to a friend, subscribe, give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all so much for listening. Take care, stay well, and tune in again next time.